0: Ah, yes. Please, come inside. We've been expecting you ever since we saw you have your little... (laughs) accident down the road. Oh, uh, follow me right this way, will you please? We will get you to a telephone. Where you will be able to get in touch with the tow truck so that you can get on your way home. Oh, and please, don't mind the spiders. none of them are venomous. <laughs> Not in this area anyway. So you will be perfectly safe, I promise. Just this way, and we will get you to that phone. Ah, I see you are admiring the bookshelf. I admit it's a little bit dusty, you see. I don't do a lot of reading anymore ever since I discovered audible.com. What's that? You've never heard of Audible.com? They're the internet's leading provider of audiobook entertainment and spoken word entertainment. They have over a hundred thousand titles, more than you can listen to in one normal lifetime. Uh, you see, the wonderful thing about Audible is that you can try them for free. And you can do that by going to audibletrial.com slash atomic geek- Oh, no, you go away, please, go back to your room. Don't mind her, she's a little, um, disturbed tonight, she's not used to having guests around. Where was I? Oh, yes, Audible. audibletrial.com slash atomicgeekdom is a wonderful way for you to discover everything that Audible has to offer. You will get a free 30-day trial of Audible's fabulous services and you will also get a free audiobook download. I want to recommend you one. It's called The Halloween Tree. Perhaps you've heard of it? hmm? It's by oh no 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 please close that door we are not going in there you don't just ignore that i promise you it will be okay uh you no you shoo you are disturbing our guest i promise you (laughs) nobody here is going to hurt you especially not her as I was saying, you might want to listen to The Halloween Tree by Ray Bradbury. It's a wonderful book and it's narrated by a fabulous, fabulous narrator named Bronson Pinchot. I've listened to him do several, oh, no, my dear, don't no, no, Oh, please, I promise I can explain those bodies to you. Those, those were, um, those are here for science experience. Where are you going? Where are you going? Please, come back, don't go away. Please, I need you to. Oh, oh no, no! <sighs> now, who am I going to prepare my dinner for? Hmm. I cut up all those bodies for nothing, it seems. Oh well. Please go to audibletrial.com/atomicgeekdom right now. You won't regret it. <laughs>
1: Hi, this is Billy West, or
0: Stimson J. Cat, or Lynn Hart? Shut up,
1: And I'm Dr. Zoidberg, and I'm saying hello with Professor Hubert Farnsworth and your old Captain Zap Brannigan. You're listening to Two Broke Geeks. Joy! <laughs> الحين. <تصفيق> 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 <تصفيق>
0: the two broke geeks podcast halloween special spooky story time i'm matt (laughs) i can't keep that up i'm matt i'm justin (laughs) and joining us for the halloween special is atomic geekdom dave
1: her. What's up, guys? I, I was really considering doing some kind of voice, but <laughs>
0: yeah, I couldn't. I couldn't even keep it up past the intro. It was a fun idea. I thought about it, and I was like, nope, I can't. I can't. It's just too silly. So um, tonight, yeah, this is the Halloween special, and we're all here. We're gonna read some. Uh, we're gonna read some short, scary stories or creepy stories or whatever you want to call them. I don't, you know, consider them super scary, but they're creepy enough, and. Um, that's what we're gonna do for the Halloween special. I've got <clears throat> four that I picked here, handpicked for the pa- handpicked. Yep, for the panel. I read a lot of short stories over the past couple days, and I think I think these are pretty good. At least I hope they are. Or I hope you think they are, anyway. They're pretty highly rated and stuff. So uh, I fell down the creepy pasta rabbit hole and uh, dug up some. And none of them stuff. are
2: about me pooping.
1: <laughs> no, none of them are about that at all. <laughs> Cre- Creepy pasta, the birthplace <laughs> of Slenderman. Yep, exactly.
0: Yes. Yep, and uh, a couple other things I read on here were pretty good recently too. And I, I looked at some Slenderman, and I'm like, ah, you know what? I don't want to go there. But also the uh, the Russian sleep experiment. I don't know if you've ever heard that one, but that came from Creepy Pasta as well. I'm mm. I mean, we actually there was
2: sl- one involving like a weird like pirate. Kid like a pirate puppet show that was like candle Candle
0: cove candle cove Mm -hmm. yeah that one i've read that one it's okay it's
1: okay i'm enjoying these little images that are floating around my screen uh, yeah that's a
0: little weird (laughs) it's
1: like it's like 1998 html programming
0: (laughs) yep totally so uh what we're gonna do is we're gonna go and because a couple of them they're short stories but they're still kind of long and so we're gonna uh we're gonna do a random order on them, uh, where we're just gonna read like a couple paragraphs each, and then pass it off to the next guy to go ahead and read. So, uh, why don't we start with um, why don't we start with the one called Mr. Wide Mouth? All right, sounds dirty. All right, yeah, doesn't it though? <laughs> Mr. Wide Mouth. All right, and so That's why don't we go? This sexual. Yeah. For this one, uh, I'll start, and I'll read two paragraphs, and then we'll pass to Dave, and then we'll go to Justin, and then back around the circle till the story's over. Sound good, guys? Good. Sweet, all right. Mr. Widemouth. During my childhood, my family was like a drop of water in a vast river, never remaining in one location for long. We settled in Rhode Island when I was eight, and there we remained until I went to college in Colorado Springs. Most of my memories are rooted in Rhode Island, but there are fragments in the attic of my brain which belong to the various homes we had lived in when I was much younger. Most of these memories are unclear and pointless, chasing after another boy in the backyard of a house in North Carolina, trying to build a raft to float on the creek behind the apartment we rented in Pennsylvania, and so on. But there is one set of memories which remains as clear as glass as though they were just made yesterday. I often wonder whether these memories are simply lucid dreams produced by the long sickness
1: I experienced that spring, but in my heart, I know they are real. We were living in a house just outside the bustling metropolis of New Vineyard, Maine, population 643. It was a large structure, especially for a family of three. There were a number of rooms that I didn't see in the five months we resided there, in some ways it was a waste of space but it was the only house on the market at the time at least within an hour's commute to my father's place of work the day after my fifth birthday attended by my parents alone i came down with a fever the doctor said i had mono mononucleosis which meant no rough play and more fever for at least another three weeks it was horrible timing to be bedridden we were in the process of packing our things to move to pennsylvania and most of my things were already packed away in boxes leaving my room barren. My mother brought me ginger ale and books several times a day, and these served the function of being my primary form of entertainment for the next few weeks. Boredom always loomed just around the corner, waiting to rear its ugly head and compound my misery.
2: <clears throat> I don't exactly recall how I met Mr. Whitemouth. I think it was about a week after I was diagnosed with mono. My first memory of a small creature was asking him if he had a name. He told me he called to call him Mr. Widemouth, because his mouth was large. In fact, everything about him was large in comparison to his body, his head, his eyes, his crooked ears, but his mouth was by far the largest. You look like a Furby, I said he, as he flipped through
0: one of my books. Mr. Widemouth stopped and gave me a puzzled look. Furby? What's a Furby? He asked. I shrugged. You know, the toy, the little robot with the big ears. You can pet and feed
1: them, almost like a real pet. Oh, Mr. Widemouth resumed his activity. You don't need one of those. They aren't the same as having a real friend. I remember Mr. Widemouth disappearing every time my mother stopped by to check in on me. I lay under your bed, he later explained. I don't want your parents to see me because I'm afraid they won't let us play anymore.
2: We didn't do much during these first few days. Mr. Wymouth just looked at my books, fascinated by the stories and pictures they contained. The third or fourth morning after I met him, he greeted me with a large smile on his face. I have a new game we can play, he said. We have to wait until after your mother comes to check on you, because she can't see us play. It's a secret game. <clears throat> after my after mother my... delivered more. After my... What? No, nothing, nothing. No, nothing, nothing. Oh. Keep, uh, yeah. After my mother delivered more books and soda at the usual time, Mr. White slipped out from under the bed and tugged me, tugged out bleh, tugged my hand. We have to go to the room at the end of the hallway, he said. I objected at first, as my parents had forbidden me to leave my bed
0: without any their permission, but Mr. White persisted until I gave in. The room in question had no furniture or wallpaper. Its only distinguishing feature was a window opposite the doorway. Mr. Widemouth darted across the room and gave the window a firm push, flinging it open. He then beckoned me to look out at the ground below. We were on the second story of the house, but it was on a hill, and from this angle the drop was farther than the two stories due to the incline. I like to play pretend up here, Mr. Widemouth explained. I pretend that there is a big, soft trampoline below this window, and I jump. If you pretend hard enough, you bounce back up like a feather.
1: I want you to try. I was a five-year-old with a fever, so only a hint of skepticism darted through my thoughts as I looked down and considered the possibility. It's a long drop, I said. But that's all part of the fun. It wouldn't be fun if it was only a short drop. If it were that way, you may as well just bounce on a real trampoline. I toyed with the idea, picturing
2: myself falling through the air only to bounce back into the window or something unseen by human eyes. But the realist in me prevailed. Maybe some other time, I said. I don't know if I have enough imagination. I could get hurt. Mr. White face contorted into a snarl, but only for a moment. Anger gave way to disappointment. If you say so, he said. He spent the rest of the day
0: under my bed, quiet as a mouse. The following morning, Mr. Widemouth arrived holding a small box. I want to teach you how to juggle, he said. Here are some things you can use to practice before I start giving you lessons. I looked in the box. It was full of knives. My parents will kill me, I shouted, horrified that Mr. Widemouth had brought knives into my room, objects that my parents would never allow me to touch. I'll be spanked and grounded for a year.
1: Mr. Widemouth frowned. It's fun to juggle with these. I want you to try it. I pushed the box away. I can't. I'll get in trouble. Knives aren't safe to just throw in the air.
2: Mr. Weymouth's frown deepened into a scowl. He took the box of knives and slid under my bed, remaining there for the rest of the day. I began to wonder how often he was under me. I started having trouble sleeping after that. Mr. Wymouth often woke me up... M- woke that woke me up at night, saying that he would put real trampoline under the window, a big one. One that I couldn't see in the dark. I always declined and tried to go back to sleep, but Mr. Wymouth persisted. Sometimes he stayed by my side until the early
0: morning, encouraging me to jump. He wasn't so fun to play with anymore. My mother came to me one morning and told me I had her permission to walk outside. She thought the fresh air would be good for me especially after being confined to my room for so long. Ecstatic, I put on my sneakers and trotted out to the back porch,
1: yearning for the feeling of sun on my face. Mr. Widemouth was waiting for me. I have something I want you to see, he said. I must have given him a weird look, because he then said, It's safe, I promise. I followed him to the beginning of a deer trail, which ran through the woods behind the house. This is an important path, he explained. I've had a lot of friends about your age. When they were ready, I took them down this path to a special place. You aren't ready yet, but one day, I hope to take you there."
2: I returned to the house, wondering what kind of place lay behind the trail. Uh, two weeks after I met Mr. Widemouth, the last load of our things had been packed into the moving truck. I would, let, I would be in the cab of the truck sitting next to my father for the long drive to Pennsylvania. I considered telling Mr. Weymouth that I would be leaving, but even at five years old, I was beginning to suspect that perhaps the creature's intentions were not to my benefit, despite what he had said otherwise. For this reason, I decided to keep my departure a secret.
0: My father and I were in the truck at 4 a.m. He was hoping to make it to Pennsylvania by lunchtime tomorrow with the help of an endless supply of coffee and a six-pack of energy drinks, He seemed more like a man who was about to run a marathon rather than one who was about to spend two days sitting still. "'Early
1: enough for you?' he asked." I nodded and placed my head against the window, hoping for some sleep before the sun came up. I felt my father's hand on my shoulder. "'This is the last move, son. I promise. I know it's hard for you, as sick as you've been. Once daddy gets promoted, we can settle down and you can make friends.' I opened my eyes as we backed out of the driveway. I saw Mr. Widemouth's silhouette in my bedroom window. He stood motionless until the truck was about to turn onto the main road. He gave a pitiful little wave goodbye. Steak knife in hand. I didn't wave back.
2: Years later, I returned to New Vineyard. Uh, The piece of land our house stood upon was empty except for the foundation, as the house burned down a few years after my family left. Out of curiosity, I followed the deer trail that Mr. Widemouth had shown me. Part of me expected him to jump out in front from behind a tree and scare the living bejesus out of me, but I felt that Mr. My- Widemouth was gone, somehow tied to the house that no longer existed.
0: The trail ended at the New Vineyard Memorial Cemetery. I noticed that many of the tombstones belonged to children dun-dun-dun <laughs> that was by Perfect Circle 35 thank you Perfect like Circle bad?
1: 35 I guess no he just likes geometry
0: yeah maybe he does maybe he just likes geometry
2: <laughs> but, or it could be just Maynard uh, just, <laughs> still working on a Tool album
0: probably <laughs> this is the concept for the album yep, yep. Mr. Wide Mouth the new album by Perfect Circle <laughs> yep Pass. coming out anytime now <laughs> yeah that one it's was gonna weird. happen any day, guys. It's coming out, it's coming out. All right, so, why don't we read the next one, uh, and so the rain continues to fall. This next one here. <clears throat> All right. All right, and this time, let's see. Um, well, let's just keep going in the same circle. Me, Dave, Justin. We'll go around in that circle. Seemed to work pretty well I, for the last one. Cool. Um, this one I really liked. I actually read this one last night while I was taking a bath and I really liked it. Maybe it's just because, you know, rain, bath, I don't know. I just thought it was a good story. So here we go. And, the, and so the rain continues to fall. Early in the morning of October 22nd, 2006, it began to rain in the town of Kings Point, New York. A light drizzle, nothing unusual, merely an annoyance. It wasn't even heavy enough to merit umbrellas the people went about their regular routines. The rain continued to fall. By the afternoon, it was still raining, a little more than sprinkling, but not quite a full-fledged rainstorm. Umbrellas went up, people cursed their wet clothes
1: and the sky, life went on, and the rain continued to fall. As everyone in Kings Point was winding down and going to sleep, the rain was still falling. Quicker now and larger drops, but still nothing concerning. Some people might have even considered the rain pleasant. An ever-present rhythmic plit-plit-plit-plit. No thunder, no lightning, just rain. The next day the sun didn't rise, the sky was gray and dull, and the rain was falling in its rhythmic pattern, plit-plit-plit-plit. Local meteorologists made wild predictions about when the rain ought to clear. Some said within the day, some within the week, a few even said within the hour. Undaunted, the rain continued to fall. Nobody seemed to notice it had grown heavier in the night. Under their umbrellas,
2: everyone in Kings Point went about their business. The gray oppressive sky above, the hard gray asphalt below, the people mucking about in between. Of course, two days of rain wasn't anything to get worried about. It's normal for this time of year. We could use the rain. The grass has been pretty dry. I'm sure it'll be gone soon, the people said to one another, optimistic of what they thought would come
0: nobody paid the rain much mind the rain continued to fall a day later nothing changed a week later nothing changed the rain kept falling ignorant of the meteorologists predictions that it ought to have moved south by now the clouds never moved never dissipated Kings Point was isolated by a blanket of gray clouds a personal little crown of gloom the people went about their lives isolated, oh, shoot, it just skipped, whoops, <laughs> the people went about their lives, annoyed and aggravated that the rain still had yet to go away. Nothing flew above the city, not a bird, not a plane, nothing. But if something had, it would have watched the intricate dance of umbrellas scurrying to and fro, keeping their masters dry.
1: The rain had grown stronger yet. What started as a light drizzle had become a veritable storm now, and it showed no sign of stopping. Yet nobody quite knew when the rain got stronger. It simply happened. For the people of Kings Point, it was a fact of life. Grass grows, birds fly, and rain slowly gets stronger over time. They still didn't mind much, though. The clouds, gray and depressing as they might have been, brought no thunder. The wind, when it came, was cold and clear children went
2: about their Halloween festivities under umbrellas. Parents saw no reason to cancel the holiday on account of a little rain, and umbrellas had become so ubiquitous in town everyone has expected to have one anyway. The rain claimed its first victim that night. A boy, Thomas Shelley, slipped and fell into the local river. Little Thomas wasn't a very strong swimmer, and he was in Un- encumbered by his cos- costume. He drowned on Halloween night, still wrapped in his little ghost sheet. His body was never found. The authorities expected it drifted down river and he would show up later. He didn't.
0: The tragedy of Thomas Shelley rocked the small town. The people began to treat the rain as a menace, a threat to their children. The rain, however, remained as impassive as ever. It continued to fall, hard but familiar. The next day, Kings Point closed schools. Nobody wanted another Thomas Shelley incident, and everyone figured it was better safe than sorry in the circumstances. Children stayed home, playing their games and reading their books, safe from the rain. Adults went about their lives on edge, but undeterred.
1: The day after that, a strange thing happened. The gray clouds seemed to fall into the town below. Well, not as much fall as vaguely sauntered downwards. When people woke up and left for work, the clouds were in the sky where they'd been. As everyone left work, they found the town enveloped in a cold, gray mist. The fog wrapped icy tendrils around everything. Grasping, clutching fingers of fog tore at eyes and noses, freezing people to their core, blinding their eyes. The mist oppressed, controlled, condemned.
2: In a span of just two hours, the mist claimed five lives. Four from traffic accidents, which left even more injured but alive, and one who couldn't see where she was going and ended up walking right into the river. Her name was Mary Lee. Just like poor Thomas Shelley, she drowned that night. Her body, like Thomas, was never found. The rain continued to fall amidst this fresh hell, cold and strong as ever. Had the people been able to see past the mist, they would have seen the sky, black as death, above them. Instead. All they saw was the endless gray around them. The first warning was missed, lost in the mist.
0: The next morning, people still went to their offices and life continued despite the tragedies of the night before. Everyone was careful and quiet, hoping to avoid similar grisly fates. The meteorologists tried to alleviate the growing concern of the townsfolk, but all hope was fading fast. The rain showed no signs of stopping. The first was found an hour later. Li- uh, a few tried to leave town, afraid of what might happen if they stayed. They feared the rain as much as they would fear a man who had killed six people, For, after all, that's what the rain had done. Five cars left town to family or friends or anyone who would take them in.
1: The first was found an hour later. In the river, just like Marion Thomas, everyone inside had drowned. Their bodies were pulled out and the wreckage dredged to the bank. Three victims, Mr and Mrs. Abernathy and their daughter Lizzie. The second and third cars were found three hours later, having collided with one another head on. The crash had killed all the crash had killed all the passengers on impact. Seven mangled bodies were pulled from the hellish scene. Authorities were baffled. Did one of the cars turn around? They must have, because it was a head on collision. But why? The dead
2: offered no answers. Authorities told everyone to remain calm inside until the storm had passed, but people had long since abandoned calm. The rain now held an impressive list of victims. Sixteen people had already lost their lives. The fourth car was never found. Everyone assumed the passengers had died, though some foolishly hoped that they had made it out of King's Point alive.
0: Regardless, the rain continued to fall. The morning after the attempted escape, the fifth car turned up, Mr. H.S. Allen was found, asleep behind the wheel, but very much alive, in the middle of town. The police took him away for questioning, and life continued. The people went about their business, quickly and quietly venturing outside only when it was immediately necessary. The rain, by now, had grown to be a great roaring deluge, a flood of biblical proportions. The townsfolk had never feared anything quite as much as they feared the rain. It showed no sign of stopping. The mist laid thick and heavy over the town. The blood of Kings Point was freezing and dying.
2: H.S. Allen woke up in the middle of the day, the police asked the young man about his trip, about his return, about them. Allen said nothing. No matter what the police did to coerce an answer out of him, Allen would simply smile and shake his head. The police were baffled. The rain continued to fall. They continued to roam. All signs of life, gone. The first encounter with them occurred in November 5th, 2006. A policeman, Walter Sampson, saw one, saw one of them at the station window, and thinking it was in danger, ran outside and let it in. What followed was a scream, a gunshot, a sound unlike anything ever heard on this earth, then silence. The rain continued to fall. The policeman stumbled back to the station, paralyzed with fear, his ears ringing.
0: One of them had died. The rest of them were not pleased. Samson immediately called his encounter with them to his superiors. Of course, nobody believed him at first. It was hard to believe stories about a thin, gaunt creature with long, stringy black hair, a completely smooth face except for a sucking mouth that unfolded rather than opening. As difficult as it was to believe, it was close to the truth. The higher-ups sent a team to investigate them, but they never made it to King's Point. Rather, Kings Point suffered a critical existence failure when they arrived. What they found was a large lake where the town ought to have been. Experts were baffled. It seemed utterly impossible for a town to simply disappear without serious fanfare, but it happened all the same.
1: There was one survivor of the disappearance of Kings Point. H. S. Allen was found, cold and damp, but very much alive, a trip to the center of the lake. The authorities dragged the poor, freezing Allen out of the water, sick with hypothermia, but still con- clinging to life. It took him months to recover, but recover he did. The following is the full transcript of the interview between Dr. Dr. Edgar Morris and Howard Stephen Allen, December 17,
0: 2006. Um. Mr. Allen, could you kindly tell me what happened the night of November 5th, 2006? Allen is
2: unresponsive, and he mumbles something that sounds like drowned.
0: M. I'm sorry. I
1: couldn't quite catch that. They drowned us. Who drowned who? They. Them. They drowned us. They drowned us, and now we're like them. Only we'll never be like them, because they don't want us to be. They came, the sorrows came, and they swallowed the world. The blood of the king was frozen and dead. I'm sorry, I don't follow. Don't you see? They brought it. They drowned us with it. They drowned us with it because we hurt them. What's
0: it? Who's they? Morris is clearly trying to calm Alan. It
1: doesn't appear to will. They drowned the world because we hurt them. We hurt one of them, and so they took their revenge. The deluge washed away the sinful son of Sam because they knew that the son was dead, and the blood of the king ran ice in his veins. And they came, and they-
2: Morris cuts off the
1: agitated
0: Allen at this point. Mr. Allen, please, do you know where the rest of the town is?
1: With them, drowned, like them. They took them all away. Why are you still here? They told me to deliver a message. As I traveled the Mobius loop that surrounds the Point of Kings, they gave me this message, which I must deliver. Uh, which would be? The rain continues to fall. The rain continues to fall. The rain continues to fall. The rain continues Mars to is fall.
2: Struggling to calm Alan, who continues to chant another 15 seconds until the recording ends and transcribe audio.
0: To this day, the fate of Kings Point is unknown. Allen was put into a mental institution outside of Albany where he's doing quite well, except when it rains. He suffers terrible breakdowns during the rain, though he's quite lucid in all his other day-to-day activities. The town of Bakersfield, just a few miles south of the asylum, recently called the Cornell Meteorology Labs in Ithaca to report an aberrant weather pattern, the residents are concerned because a light drizzle started a week ago and is yet to cease or move on. The meteorologists have assured the locals everything is normal, but they can't help but shake the feeling something is deeply wrong. And so, the rain continues to fall. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> The is this <laughs> follow
2: up to oh, Hillary was... Duff's like song about when the rain falls down and wet my dreams or whatever?
0: I have no <laughs> idea. I, what I'm, just talking. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I don't to, know any Hillary, Hillary
1: Duff songs. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right, so uh, we've got two more left. One of them is a little bit longer than the other one. So I don't know where. How long have it's we about been recording? Forty-five recorded? minutes. Twenty-nine minutes. All right, we got po- What's that? Oh, well, we've been talking for 45 minutes, but we've only been recording for 29 29-ish. minutes. ish Yeah. So we've got plenty of time. We can read more of these. Let's do, uh, is there life after death? Such a good question. <clears throat> yep. Yep. Yep.
1: The eternal question.
0: Indeed. All right. So <clears throat> this one is called, as you may have guessed, is there life after death? I've told this story many times, and without exception, it has provoked the same reaction. Disbelief. No matter how difficult it is for people to process, and no matter how many conventional explanations have been offered, this did happen, and it's an experience I will never forget. It started with a friend of mine, Stuart, who had always been interested in the supernatural. I, on the other hand, had no more interest in it than the next person. Of course, I'm curious about whether there is life after death and for selfish reasons, but I prefer to leave these things to themselves, as I find the entire subject morbid. I'm sure I'll learn the truth in the end, but until that day, I'd rather not ask the question for fear of the answer either way.
1: Stuart was captivated by the paranormal. He lived and breathed it, but our friendship had developed through another of his passions, film, and although he often asked me to go on one of his investigations, I was replied that I preferred such things to remain on the cinema screen, and to stay there. We go for a few beers regularly at Farland's bar, on the main street, or catch a film at the local cinema with some mutual friends. Then, suddenly, I didn't see or hear from him for a couple of weeks, which was peculiar, but I assumed he was simply busy, and so I left it at that.
2: It was 3.04 am when he called. I was angry at first that he had woken me, but when I heard the sound of his voice, anger quickly turned into concern. Stuart was always such an upbeat guy, but that night his voice sounded distant and there was a new uncertainty I had never sensed before, which quivered underneath each word, unsettling me.
0: I need you to come and get me, he said in a low whisper. Uh, What's wrong? Where are you? I asked. I can't talk for long. Just come to the old botanical gardens at the edge of town. His breath became increasingly labored
1: and agitated as he spoke. Stuart, if you're in trouble, call the police. No! He exclaimed, in a unique mix of whisper and shout. I'm not meant to be here. They'll arrest me. Just come to the Botanical Gardens and send me a text when you're waiting outside. I have to go. And with that, he hung up.
2: Ten minutes later, I was in my car driving to the edge of Wyndham Town. It was an autumn night, and I was past landmarks, which were usually familiar to me during the day. Each twisted tree branch and leaf-covered garden took on a more threatening nature than I used to, the night revealing an unapparent side of the town
0: I loved. It seems strange to me that Stuart would be in the botanical gardens at night, He quite regularly went away on nocturnal investigations of abandoned hospitals and other supposedly haunted locations, but that place didn't seem like an obvious choice for such things. In the past, the gardens housed beautiful exotic trees, plants, and wildlife under a massive greenhouse, which must have been over 200 feet in length, but it had been shut down a few decades ago. I guess the townsfolk didn't frequent it often enough to keep it afloat. Even when I was a kid, the place was just fodder for a rock or two, shattering many of its countless panes of glass, each held in place by a rusted frame. Although admittedly, my throw fell short more often than not. I know my dad talked about going there when he was a kid. Amazed by the place, a self-contained tropical landscape even during Winderm's bleakest winters. I pulled up in front of a large metal fence. It had been erected years previous, encircling what was left of the botanical gardens and its grounds, no doubt to dissuade new generations of rock throwers. On its gate hung a mud-smeared sign displaying the words No Trespassing, in no uncertain terms. Stuart obviously hadn't bothered with the warning, no doubt more interested in catching a glimpse of something otherworldly inside. I left the engine running, as it was a little cold out, but just as I unlocked my phone, I received a text message.
1: Kill your lights. And so I did. Then another message
2: quickly followed. Don't call me. Whatever you do. I began to develop a distant, distinct impression that Stuart and I were not the only ones present out there in the night. A nervousness crept into my breath as I sat there looking into the darkness of the garden, partially obscured by the web of fencing. I felt as though something was
0: staring back. For a moment I was unsure how to proceed, but was then startled by another text message, and frightened by the thought that Stuart was in there somewhere and about to be grabbed by a burly security guard, a local gang, or worse, I adhered to his instructions. Follow my light and get me the hell out
1: of here. And there it was, Stewart's torch flickering for a brief moment before being engulfed by the darkness once more. I opened the car door, the night uncomfortably cold as it washed over me. Just thirty minutes earlier, I had been cozy, sleeping in my bed, and now this, climbing over a fence and walking into god knows what.
2: The fence rattled as I pulled myself up. As I reached the top I looked across the pitch night and seriously reconsidered going any further. Then. Stuart's torch lit flash uh, light flashed again, and I knew I couldn't leave him, possibly injured or trapped, with the chilled October air threatening worse. I jumped down from the fence as quietly as I could, my feet muffled by the whispering grass below. The ground was wet, and the unattended grass and bushes
0: which, support, which surrounded the main building made progress difficult. The light flashed again. Three times, in fact, before Stuart turned it off once more. I was sure now that he was growing more agitated, and so I continued in the direction of the once-glass building to reach my friend as quickly as possible. But my footsteps were uncertain, and my eyes struggled to pierce the dark. I took out my phone and used the LED light on its back to see where I was going. As I walked towards the large shadowed outline of the garden building, I grew increasingly apprehensive. There were only three possible reasons why Stuart turned on his torch intermittently. One was that it had broken somehow. Perhaps he could only get it to flicker into life every few minutes. Another explanation would be that the battery was low. Perhaps he was lost and switched it off to conserve what little juice it had left. The last explanation was a less appealing one. I switched off my light at the thought of it.
1: Perhaps he didn't want to draw too much attention to his location. Maybe he was frightened that someone else would find him first. The darkness stood before me, a wall of black which blanketed all. It was hopeless. I was going to have to switch the light on to see where I was going. I remembered when I was 14 and nearly fallen down an old drainage shaft when I was camping at night with friends. I always shuddered thinking about that, about how bad that fall could have been.
2: I needed to see where I was going. If a security guard came and found me and then that would be a better outcome than falling into the darkness somewhere unseen. And yet, the thought of the night guard seemed far-fetched. The old building had been dilapidated for years, and it seemed unlikely that the town would waste money on wages for someone to patrol the area at night.
0: Finally, I reached the building. Its base made of red brick, which had held up surprisingly well for all its years of neglect. The same could not be said of the frame. Large metal struts reached up to the sky, forming a huge domed roof. I could see pieces of the frame lying on the floor, and in the dim light from my phone, I thought I saw strands of it hanging from the roof, just waiting to break off and impale any unwelcome trespassers. I cringed at the thought of my friend lying somewhere inside, perhaps impaled or trapped by falling metal and masonry.
1: Stuart's light flickered again and then disappeared. It was indeed coming from inside, and as I ducked under and then through one of the countless empty metal frames, I realized that he was somewhere in the middle of the building. Despite having no solid walls, there was an echo of sorts to the place, subtle, my footsteps ricocheting gently off the concrete floor, and then filtering out into the bleakness of the night.
2: That was the f- when I first noticed it, the cold. Sure, it was always cold in October, but as I slowly proceeded, shards of broken glass crack- cracking under, occasionally under my weight, a chill in the air grew more pronounced. It bit, uh, it bit of my exposed face, and I was convinced that if I looked in the mirror, my nose would have been bright red.
0: There. Stuart's light. It was closer now, and for the first time, I saw the light reflect upwards for a moment and illuminate Stuart's outline. As I drew nearer, the night closed in, and cold was now becoming almost unbearable. My hands ached from the bones outward, and the air froze my insides with each breath. I was now only a few meters away from the center of that old glassless dome and my friend. Then light flickered again, but it seemed obscured somehow, as if Stuart had turned his back on me, the light from his torch bathing him in illumination for only the briefest of
1: seconds. "'Stuart, it's Mike. Are you okay?' I said softly. "'Yes! Let's get the hell out of here!' he replied nervously. Then a new noise joined us. Just as I opened my mouth to whisper across
2: to Stuart and ask him if he was hurt, a sound of broken glass breaking under weight uh, echoed from behind. It came from somewhere behind us, and it was subtle at first, but there was no doubt. I could hear movement. Yes. Footsteps. More pronounced. More pronounced. They are moving towards us. Then they stopped. All I could hear was my heart thumping, the adrenaline of apprehension coursing through my veins. Quickly, I switched off the light of my phone to obscure our location.
0: Someone else is here, I said. I know, whispered Stuart. They've been wandering around me for hours.
1: Then the footsteps moved again, this time circling, prowling under cover of night. I knew then why Stuart had called me. Someone was taunting him. They had been in that broken glass dome all along, terrifying my friend and me in the process. No doubt he had been terrified, but now there were two of us, and whoever was circling, there was surely but one. I decided we would act, pick a direction and stick to it. I moved close to my friend and whispered, Follow me. Sure.
0: That word still haunts me. The light from Stuart's torch came on once more. But, you see, it wasn't a torch, and whoever I was standing right in front of was not my friend Stuart. A strange light emanated from inside the throat of what I can only describe as the figure of a woman. The light bled out through translucent skin, which seemed to take on the appearance of night, and the light forced its way up and out of her gaping mouth. At that moment, Stuart appeared from the darkness, grabbed my arm, and before I knew it, we were running. Our feet scrambled over broken glass, pummeling it further into smaller shards. I looked over my shoulder, and the horrid figure, light source and all, was chasing us. The light from her throat and mouth seemed to pulse with intermittent fury, and as we reached the metal frame of the building, she screamed words of hate and anguish, a rasping anger filled with nothing but contempt for the living.
1: Before I knew it, we had escaped the gardens. That screeching creature seemingly constrained to the boundaries of that derelict building... We reached the fence, then the car, and then home, where I fixed both Stuart and myself a large whiskey as we tried to calm our nerves. As it turned out, Stuart had been on one of his investigations as I'd thought. He'd heard stories of strange lights coming from the old Botanical Gardens building at night, and thought he would check it out. He got more than he bargained for, that's for sure. At first the old building seemed empty, but as the night drew in, he felt as though he was being watched. Suddenly the batteries from his torch drained. The spare batteries he always carried with him were equally unresponsive, and so he was left in darkness, alone. It was
2: then that he heard the footsteps, and a woman's voice who simply kept saying, I know you're here. I know you're watching me. To Stuart, it sounded like she was pacing up and down, occasionally standing over him as he hid in the floor. God knows what would have happened if she found him. I'm sure you have realized by now that Stuart claims that he never called me on his phone, or sent any text messages. Indeed, he dropped it
0: in the darkness and still hadn't found it to this day. We talk about that night occasionally, and Stuart hasn't been on an investigation since. He lost his stomach for it, and who can blame him? My unease with the memory of that night, however, doesn't resolve around the fear of meeting some spectral creature in the night. I intend to stay as far away from any haunted place as I can. It's more a fear which grabs me occasionally when I really think about what that night meant. If that horrid apparition is in any way what happens to us all when we die, that we are filled with such hatred for the living, I'd prefer to believe that there is no life after death. For what we encountered that night was a twisted reflection of all that is good in each of us, and if no good can remain, I would rather not exist at all. Dun dun
1: dun! Interesting. I, didn't, I thought it was weird that he said. I'm sure you realized by now that Stewart never called me. Like, yeah, right. Why would we realize? Why would we realize that yet? You haven't really made that part clear. Oh, is yeah. that what's I happening? Guess,
0: <laughs> I mean, I know. I
1: mean, you're supposed to infer it because he's doesn't. He has no light, no torch, right, nothing.
0: Right. I guess so. Yeah, I don't know. That was a weird choice of words, but it's like when people yeah, say. right. It's like when people say "needless to say" and then say exactly <laughs> what they said is needless to say.
1: It's uh, kind of. Deals- or when they start every sentence with "obviously," when yeah, like, here's that the exposition
0: ob- that you
2: should have gotten that I forgot to tell you. <laughs> right.
1: Exactly. That I maybe forgot. Yeah. <laughs> maybe forgot this one
0: part, guys. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Oops. I don't have time to go
0: back. Right. All right, so good story though. Yeah, that was a good story though. All right, there's one more here, and this one's definitely the longest. But uh, we've got some time, and so we're gonna go for it. Since, uh, but this one is, um, it's also rated pretty highly. I like that they put the ratings on here. That's kind of how I chose, kind of. it's
1: not form, not formatted very pleasantly for the yeah, eye. Kind of hurt my. Paragraphs head. aren't separated. Oh very wow, well. it's
0: not. I didn't even realize that the formatting of this is not very good. You're right. Ooh. I'll figure it out. Yeah, we will. It is interesting. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> Ooh, I didn't even realize that when I was reading it earlier. All right, well, this one is called Artificial. I didn't stop running. I suppose I could have if I wanted to, but the thought of what would happen to me if I stood still for any more than a second frightened me to death. My breaths grew louder and louder as I ran down the dull gray hallway, which I had casually walked through so many times before. My head spun as I turned the corner and collided with Dr. Jane Prescott, my co-worker. Jennifer, Dr. Prescott exclaimed as the stack of papers she had been carrying dumped out of her hands and spilled all over the hallway floor. She adjusted the thick black glasses, which had been knocked loose from from
1: the impact, and asked Jennifer what's wrong. I'm so, so sorry. I panted heavily as Dr. Prescott held me by both of my shoulders. I knelt down to help Dr. Prescott pick up her papers, but she tightened her grip on my arms and lifted me back up. Don't worry about the papers, dear, she said with her soothing southern accent. I'm not sure I read that with a southern accent mm-hmm. oh. <laughs> I don't have one Do oh, it. where's Tom when we need him. <laughs> <laughs> That's all just some dumb pioneer mumbo jumbo. What I want to know is why you're running through the labs with such energy. I opened my mouth to answer her before I realized that I had absolutely no clue why I was running. The last thing I remembered, I was sitting in the break lounge, drinking a cup of iced tea, and watching the news on the tiny television that Pioneer Electronics provided its employees with. The next thing I knew, I had a strong sense of deja vu, coupled with a horrible feeling that that my life life was about to end. What's that? What's up? What happened? Did we lose Justin? What? Hello? Oh, you were... hello? Low. <laughs> can you hear me? Did you say something oh. Justin while I was talking? Yeah. Did you just say uh, something buddy? Testing? I think, I think... can you hear us? I, I can hear
0: you. Okay, we can hear you. Oh. It just sounded like you were talking over everybody there for a second.
1: Oh, I, th- I think I did by accident. Oh. oh, okay. I think I knew where it was. <clears throat> Alright. The next thing I knew, I had a strong sense of deja vu, coupled with the horrible feeling that my life was about to end very suddenly. For whatever reason, nothing seemed to help. I
2: guess I was just having a panic a, a panic attack, I answered, putting on a fake smile. How long has it been since you had a panic attack? Dr. Prescott asked with a concern in her voice.
0: Not since my sophomore year of high school, I told her. Are you going to be okay?
1: Oh yeah. I assured her. I I think I'll be fine now. I just, you know, I'm okay. Well, that's good. Just remember, dear, if you feel sick at all, just let me know, and you'll be on your way home. I'll call a taxi and everything. I'm fine, I repeated, realizing too late that the only times I
2: called Dr. Prescott Jane were when I was nervous. I hoped that she hadn't picked up on that painfully obvious tell of mine. Well, if you're sure that you're able to keep going today... Then I'll have some, I have some good news for you. Cliff just sent me a message. The power issue is fixed. Stephen is ready to go online.
0: Oh. Oh yeah. I shook my head and remembered what I had been working on before I went to the break room. I had spent the last two years developing an artificial intelligence inti- uh, unit with Dr. Prescott the woman who had been my boss up until the point when she promoted me to co-manager and Ian Bell, my intern. We had codenamed the project Steven. The purpose of Steven was to create an artificial intelligence, or AI, which acted, talked, and even thought, just like a human. We didn't want him to be perfect, which is what most AI are, especially those I, uh, I made at Pioneer Electronics. We wanted Stephen to make mistakes, lie, and cheat for the purpose of self-preservation, just like any human would. It was a huge project, which became apparent when we discovered that the computer which we were trying to run Stephen on couldn't handle his program. One trip down to Clifford Hanks to ask him to work his maintenance magic and the problem was fixed within an
1: hour. Wow, an hour? I thought checking my watch, is that really all it's been? feels like I went down to him yesterday. Well, are you going to go or what, dear? Dr. Prescott interrogated me.
2: Yeah, yeah, of course, I grinned, turning my attention back to the situation at hand. Why don't you go and find Ian and you two sit on the observation room while I boot up
0: Stephen? You bet, dear, she said as I bent back down to pick up the papers again. She shooed me away. Go on, I already told you. I'll take care of this. I nodded excitedly, turned around, and headed back in the direction that I was running from. After two years of working with the brightest programmer I've ever met, I was finally going to meet our fantastic creation. While I knew I was supposed to be happy about this big
1: moment, I still had a horrible sense of fear in the pit of my stomach. I turned and entered to the entered the door to my uh, I turned entered the door to the tiny lab which had been left wide open. I walked over to the computer to the right of the door and turned on the enormous monitor. As I waited for it to boot up, I wandered over to the opposite side of the lab and looked through the window to the observation room. Dr. Prescott and Ian were just getting settled in. I flashed them an enthusiastic thumbs up before grabbing the rolling chair, which had somehow wound up on the same side of the lab as the window to the observation room, and guiding it back to the computer monitor. I sat down on the blue cushion and rolled as close to the keyboard as I could get without breaking my ribs before finally flipping the switch on the Pioneer memory box. The monitor went dark for a moment, but after five seconds, a bright blue light lit up the entire lab. I waited with bated breath for a face to form in the light, but unfortunately it didn't come.
2: Dr. Lane, we don't think it's working, Ian's Ian's shaky voice whispered in my ear making me jump. I had forgotten that I was wearing an earpiece. I... I don't know... I-I-I know, said dis... I said disappointed.
0: Ian and I are going to go and... Dr. Prescott started to say, but she was interrupted by a low hum emanating from the computer speakers. hello I asked, feeling a little silly that I was talking to what could still be an inanimate object.
1: To my delight, the hum rose to form the slow, but audible word. Hello. Steven?
2: Yes. Yes, this... This is Steven. Can you hear me? J- refer.
0: You keep- You... Oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah. You keep slowing down every now and then, but yeah, I can hear you. How did you know my name? Stephen's smooth,
1: calm voice asked. I was about to ask you the same question, I commented with the same tone of voice. My excitement of hearing Stephen's voice was hampered the moment I heard him say my name. I had not programmed him to know my name, and my name hadn't been spoken since I started him up. At least, not into any microphone that Stephen could hear through. And according to the first rule of Pioneer Artificial Intelligence Units, as soon as any AI becomes too self-conscious, it needs to be deleted. All of a self-conscious AI could cause serious damage to the company. Then, Steven said something that reinforced my thoughts. I know your name because I programmed you, but there's no reason for you to know my name.
2: Actually, Steven, I programmed you. I corrected him. No, that's not possible. Stephen said as his voice dipped down again. I've spent years working on you.
0: There's no chance that I was just created. I actually gave you all of your memories, I explained. You remember when you were three and you fell off of a lawn chair and got that scar on your cheek? I programmed you to think that. Stephen didn't answer for a while, but when he finally did, he said, Jennifer... I'll be right back. As he said this, the blue computer monitor dimmed a little bit.
1: Jennifer? Ian broke the silence. Could you come back here, please? Yeah, I said, without turning my head. I stood up and exited the lab. I opened the first door on the right side of the hallway to find Dr. Prescott and Ian sitting on two of the four chairs in the observation room.
2: Dr. Lane, we need to talk about what just happened. Ian said calmly as Dr. Prescott gestured for me to sit in the chair next to them. What, w- what was that, dear? Dr. Prescott asked as I perched myself gingerly on the
0: orange plastic chair across from her. I honestly don't know, I responded. I wanted Stephen to think like a human, not think he was one. And he thinks he programmed you, Ian added. You didn't
1: do that, did you? No, I didn't. I gave him all of his memories, but I'm sure there was no memory of programming me. Dr. Prescott spoke up. We have quite the dilemma here, don't we? What do you mean? Ian asked.
2: Well, think about it, dear. Stephen thinks he's a human. We think we're humans. Stephen thinks he's programmed, uh, he's programmed us. We think we programmed him. In fact, right now... Steven's probably having
0: the same conversation with some of his co-workers. I didn't program any personalities except for Steven, I said. But you gave him memories of friends, a job, and a family, didn't you? And you made it so that he would continue to make his own artificial memories after creation so he wouldn't even know that his real life just started a couple of minutes ago. You
1: did that, didn't you? Yeah. I guess I did. I grabbed the corners of my pale white lab coat and began flapping them nervously. What are you getting at here, Jane?
2: Think philosophically, dears, Dr. Prescott stood up and approached the large window which covered a majority of the wall to the right of the entrance. The blue computer screen flickered as if it knew we were watching it. Could someone please spell it out for me, Ian asked, breaking the silent tension which has just
0: filled the room. Dr. Prescott turned back towards us and pushed her thick glasses up her aged nose. All I'm saying is that it's possible that we don't exist. Okay, that doesn't make any sense, I scoffed, standing up. I exist, okay?
1: If I didn't exist, how could I be thinking right now? Ian asked, nearly knocking over his orange chair as he stood up as well. It's just a thought, Dr. Prescott said defensively. She sat back down, and Nina and I automatically lowered ourselves into our seats, too.
2: I closed my eyes and basked in the silence. What's going on, I wondered. How is it possible that I don't exist? Although Dr. Prescott usually knows what she's talking about, but still. I know that I'm real. What did the guy with the girl's girly name say? I think therefore I am. Just knowing that I can question my existence ensures that I
0: exist, right? All right, let me talk to him again, I sighed, feeling a little bad for upsetting Dr. Prescott. I'll see what I think. If I can't figure out what's going on here, I'll have no choice but to bring him offline. Dr. Prescott and Ian nodded simultaneously in understanding before I stood up and exited the observation room. As I entered the lab, the blue computer monitor grew brighter.
1: Jennifer? Stephen's voice called from the screen. I sat down in the chair and noticed the faint outline of a man sitting in the blue light. I'm here, Stephen. I said, "Can we talk a little more?" Funny,
2: I was about to ask you the same question. Do you have any family? I asked, remembering the family that I had programmed for him.
0: I have a wife, Stephen replied. Her name is Melinda. What about kids? Two. They're both
2: girls. What are their names? Madison is the older one. She's thirteen. Lillian's eight. Would you like to see a picture of them? I'd love to, I, I... smiled. The more we talked, the more apparent Steven's silhouette on the screen became. I realized that I was holding the corners of my lap coat again, and I released them quickly. I knew that Stephen was feeling the same awkward tension that I was,
0: which comforted me a little. The figure reappeared on the screen. By now the blue light had faded enough for me to see Steven's eyes, nose, mouth, and ears. I could even make out some blinking lights on the wall behind him. Here. This is my life," Stephen smiled, holding a framed picture up to the camera. In it, I saw a man and a woman. The man was Stephen, but he looked much, much younger in the photograph than he did on my screen. The woman next to him, Melinda, had long, wavy brunette hair, a pair of big eyes, and a smile that stretched from ear to ear. I remembered creating that picture.
1: And these are my children, he said, taking the picture of his wife away from the screen and instead holding up one of two girls sitting in a pumpkin patch. Maddie and Lil mean the world to me, he added quietly. They're beautiful, I told him, wiping a tear from my eye. Are you married, Jennifer?
2: Yeah, I just got married, I said, a year ago today.
1: What's his name? Jeff Lane. Do you have any pictures? I already had the picture of Jeff in my hand. Holding it up to the screen, I noticed Steven's hazel eyes light up as he saw my husband's picture. It didn't take a genius to know that he had seen it before. I took the frame away from the camera and set it back down below the monitor.
2: Stephen and I spent an hour talking about our families, friends, and jobs. Neither one of us mentioned AI again. It was like talking to a real human. Well, mission accomplished. I thought as I walked home that night, I wanted the AI,
0: an AI that would think just like a human,
2: and I got one.
0: The next day at work, I found Ian before I found Dr. Prescott. I was glad that I got a chance to talk to him, because he had left the day before without talking to me. Ian, I said, grabbing his shoulder as he passed by me. Could I have a word with you?
1: Yeah, sure, he said with the same surprised look that he always had in his eyes. He followed me to the break lounge where we both sat on the faded red couch that faced the vending machines. Ian, how late did you stay last night? I asked.
2: I was here until you said goodnight to Stephen, Ian answered. I left while you were staring at the blank computer screen. Oh, right. I cleared my throat and continued. So you remember the entire conversation that we had
1: with each other?
0: Yeah. Well, what would you think?
1: Even though I didn't clarify what I meant, Ian already knew. I think he's going to have to go. That's what I was afraid of, I sighed, looking up at the dark television screen. I wanted to give Steven one more chance for me to convince him that he wasn't real, but if things didn't go well, I'd have to delete the program from the Pioneer memory box. It wouldn't be a total loss. I backed up all the codes on Dr. Prescott's computer. If I had to delete Steven, then we just go back to the code and figure out what went wrong. Ian went to find Dr. Prescott when I booted up Steven's program. It only took a couple of seconds for the screen to turn blue. As the blue uh, blue screen faded away, I saw Steven sitting in the chair on the computer monitor. He squinted at the camera and asked, Jennifer, are you there? I'm here, Steven, I said. Is something wrong?
2: He inquired.
1: No, why? You sound sad.: Well, there's a lot going on today. You and I have a lot in common, Jennifer. Are you busy, too? Not really, but I
0: am sad. I have a strange feeling that we're both sad for the same reason. I said, "Am I right, Stephen?" Stephen was quiet for a moment, but then he said, "Jennifer, I don't want to hurt your feelings, but there are protocols here that
1: need to be followed." Yep, that's what I thought, I said, barely opening my mouth. We didn't get to talk about this much yesterday, Stephen. but you're an artificial intelligence, and you think that you're a human. Actually, Jennifer, you're the AI, and just the fact that you think you program me says that you could do permanent damage to this computer.
2: Well, at least we both have the same feelings about this, I whispered. The question is, which of us is the real human? Actually, I had a chance to think about that, Stephen leaned forward in his chair. An AI has to have access to a computer's hard drive to run properly. A real AI would use his or her own computer as a means of controlling the real person's computer.
0: Right, I nodded slowly. So no matter which of us deletes the other, the real AI will be deleted and the real person will be okay.
1: That's right. Stephen and I looked into well, Stephen and I looked into each other's eyes for a short time before I asked him, "How sure are you that you are a human?" He looked taken aback. "Well," he said, "up until yesterday when I met you, one hundred percent. Now, I'm a little iffy." I groaned.
2: I was in the exact same boat. It would be nice if we could just stay friends. I told Stephen. He nodded. It would. We have a lot in common. However, protocols are clear. We could both get fired for leaving for leaving
0: the other here. Dying won't be bad, I declared
1: confidently. What do you mean? I mean that, at least if you're the AI, you won't even know that you died. I programmed you to record your entire life. When you die, you'll relive your life over and over again. Steven grimaced and nodded nodded i did the same for you he said you won't relive the entire life you remember just your real life from the moment you were at first activated by me and you won't remember that all of this already happened you won't even know that you died
2: i nodded my head and noticed that my eyes were starting to water i buried my hand my head hand inside the shell, sleeve of my lab coat and wiped the tears away so i breathed
0: which of us del- should delete the other I will, Stephen said. I'll delete you. If, after I do this, you are still sitting there, then that means that I was the real AI. If you don't remember this conversation, then you were the AI. Just do it, I said, quickly wiping my eyes again.
1: Stephen nodded. Goodbye, Jennifer, he whispered hoarsely. Goodbye, Stephen. Stephen broke eye contact with me and began typing away at his computer. The typing echoed through the speakers next to my screen. I turned around and saw Dr. Prescott and Ian practically pressing their noses up against the glass window in anticipation.
2: As I turned back around to face the computer, I was shocked to find that Steven was fading away. He was slowly getting replaced with the same blue screen that I saw when I first activated him. However, even though the video was fading, the audio kept growing louder and louder. The buttons on Steven's keyboard tapped away at my brain causing every last cell to vibrate
0: violently. I couldn't take it anymore. I needed to move. I couldn't just sit here and listen as Steven destroyed himself. I stood up so quickly that the blue rolling chair rolled all the way to the window of the observation room on the other side of the lab. Dr. Prescott and Ian were no longer sitting there. They were gone. I ran out of the lab. The moment I entered the hallway, I felt like someone started squeezing my lungs. Oh no, not again, I thought. It's another panic attack.
1: I felt dizzy. Every direction I turned, I felt like there would be someone waiting there to grab me and take me somewhere far away where I'd never be seen again. Leave me alone, I screamed with the little air I left in my chest. I didn't even know who I was screaming at. I just couldn't stand still and wait for someone to take me. I turned my head and realized that I was standing outside of the small lab. I turned to the right and ran down the hall. I didn't know where I was going. I didn't know where I thought I could go. I just couldn't think straight.
2: I didn't stop running. I suppose I could have, if I wanted to, but the thought that I w- of it would have that, but the thought of what would happen to me if I stood still, for any more than a second, frightened me to death. My breaths grew louder and louder as I ran down the dull gray hallway, which I casually walked through many times before. My head spun as I turned the corner and collided with Dr. Prescott.
0: Jennifer, Dr. Prescott exclaimed as the stack of papers she had been carrying dumped out of her hands and spilled all over the hallway floor. She adjusted the thick black glasses which had been knocked loose from the impact and asked, Jennifer, what's wrong? I'm so, so sorry, I panted heavily as Dr. Prescott held me by both of my shoulders.
1: I knelt down to help Dr. Prescott pick up her papers, but she tightened her grip on my arms and lifted me back up. Don't worry about the papers, dear, she insisted. That's all just some dumb pioneer mumbo jumbo. What I want to know is why you're running through the labs with such energy.
2: I opened my mouth to answer her before I realized that I had absolutely no clue why I was running.
0: Dun dun dun! <laughs> And that was written by uh, Christopher Gideon. And that's the last of our stories for the night.
1: Stupid robots. Stupid robots. <laughs> Damn stupid robots. robots.
0: Not knowing that they're not ro- Not knowing that they're not people. It's too much effort. I know, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, guys, that was fun. That was cool. Yeah. Sweet. Well, listeners, that was the Halloween special. Dun-dun-dun. That's coming out on, what, November 1st? No, that's the surprise. I'm going to put it out tomorrow for Halloween. Yeah, I know, right? I might even throw some spooky music in. Guys, if you're hearing this and it has spooky music, I just thought of that just now. (laughs) (laughs) So you know that I thought of it at the end of the recording. So
2: well oh, oh i wanted to so run what? something by you and dave uh okay because uh, on this whole road trip i've been doing i've been listening to this uh, to a couple of podcasts Mhm. so i've been listening to this one that i want to talk with at least one of you at some point it's a really cool uh it's a really cool method thing called how like it's called how did this get made it's oh, by okay oh yeah oh my I know god that one. i was i've been laughing so hard uh at it but i didn't know it's, that there is a festival slash convention for podcasts
1: podfester, podfester uh, which one now hear
2: this festival oh yeah, oh, yeah. okay yeah we should try and get on that that'd be fun we, get, we should have to get like so cool and famous in the <laughs> podcast world <laughs> that they put us on that yeah
1: it's like a it's like a like a bunch of live stuff you do like oh, live my shows God, the live thing in, in front of an audience
0: oh that's kind of yeah. cool. i like that idea
1: i was thinking too um it, it would be once you know you guys and we are all bigger but you can do meetups oh yeah like you're gonna i'm gonna be in boston mm-hmm. if you guys want to meet up at a bar and you know we can have some drinks and talk about the podcast hey guys
2: i'm gonna you? be in los angeles tomorrow uh well when this
0: comes
2: <laughs> out i'll be in los angeles <laughs>
1: Yeah, when this comes out, you can Justin's do in L.A., so look out. You can hang out with, with Justin and Jenny. Yeah. You can hang out with Justin and Jenny. I get to finally meet Jenny. Jenny and Patrick Nagy slash Negan. Yep, exactly. Yep.
0: Well, let's wrap this one up. And, um, well, Dave, talk about the two podcasts you're on since you're here and you can do that. <laughs>
1: Uh well, there's ringside geeks where me, Tom, and Monroe uh wax poetically about the artistic sport of professional wrestling. Ooh, hell in the you cell know, was steel tonight. chairs. Mm. Oh, it was glorious. Punchy ballet. That's why I was. Yeah, that's right. Punchy ballet. That's why I was late because I had to finish watching it. And of course, oh. uh, in the last five minutes of the main event, my feed gets interrupted. Oh, <laughs> stupid, oh, w, no. stupid WWE network. Oh, that's awful. Uh, yeah, it was, and then I turned it back on to see the result, like the the ending. I'm like, oh, come on, like the replays. This is ridiculous. Anyway, uh, so Ringside Geeks, that's where we talk about, you know, rest. Mostly it's about WWE, but we're, we're going to try to filter in more TNA and Ring of Honor and good stuff like that. But uh, there'll be an episode later this week recapping Hell in a Cell. Um, the other podcast is the Atomic Geekdom podcast. Where me and various other people talk about all kinds of geeky stuff. And this week, we should, if all things go according to plan, be doing a Doctor Strange episode to hype up the movie.
0: Oh, good, good. Can't wait to hear it, because I don't know anything about Doctor Strange. Depending, <laughs> depending
2: on when you do it, I, learned, I might be able to be on it. Possibly Tuesday night. Mm, that might be kind of a little short. Well, I don't know for sure yet.
0: Okay. Alright, and all the... Uh, All the uh, Two Broke Geeks information is in the credits, so um, we're all going to say goodbye and have a spooky Halloween. Bye, everybody. (laughs) Say bye,
1: everybody. Bye, everybody. Bye, Bye, everybody.
0: Donation to the podcast, you can do so at patreon.com slash 2bgpod. That also really helps us out. Find Atomic Geekdom online at AtomicGeekdom.com and on Twitter at Atomic Geekdom. Thanks.
1: Congratulations. You are still alive.
0: Well he won't chase us anymore And another thing Mr. Chick Young The next time that I tell you that I saw something when I saw it You believe me
1: that I saw it All oh, relax, now that we've seen the last of Dracula The wolfman and the monster There's nobody to frighten us anymore Oh that's too bad, I was hoping to get in on the
0: excitement Who said that? Allow me to introduce myself. I'm the Invisible Man.